electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. What does it say that we can't hold this rally? The Dow flying after the CPI report first came out this morning. We were up more than 700 points. Now we're negative by 60, with the next Fed decision looming in 24 hours. You can see the S&P hanging on to a 10-point gain right now. The Nasdaq up 61, but a very different picture. This as yields have plunged today. The two-year and the 10-year both dropping about 20 basis points. Look at the numbers there on the re- in the red on the right. We're under 3.5% still for the 10-year. The home builder seeing a nice jump higher as rates drop today. Uh, there you can look at names from Meritage to Whole. Again, we're told only talking about 2% gains or so right now. Some tech names also trading better, like Alphabet, Meta, Lamb, and NVIDIA. We talked yesterday about how the semiconductors have been doing well. That run continues today. Meta up 4%. So what will the Fed's next move be now? Should they slam the brakes on rate hikes? The Consumer Price Index rose just a tenth of a percent last month, marking the smallest monthly increase in over a year. But my next guest says there's no way the Fed is going to shift its strategy that quickly. Let's bring in Michael Schumacher. He's head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo, along with CNBC's senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Welcome to you both. Michael Schumacher, we, we, <laughs> we have a knack for talking to each other before these big Fed pivot points. Uh, memorably, the hawkish one back in maybe March that really kicked things off. Why do you think they're going to stay the course now and this won't be a dovish surprise? Yeah, Kelly, it's a function of taking out insurance. Jay Powell and friends are still confronting super high inflation. I think they're really losing confidence or have lost confidence in their ability to predict it. So that argues for hiking more, not less, even after the good report today. Unambiguously good for the Fed. The thing is, I think it changed very little in what Jay Powell is going to say tomorrow. He'll tell the market, we're not going to ease anytime soon. Yes, we like the progress, we like the direction, but there's a lot more work to do. Yet, Steve, we see these signs of discord emerging within the Fed. We talked about the journal piece, obviously. Uh, you've hinted as well that you know maybe this galvanizes some who might not be totally on board with more aggressive rate hikes to really push the case for pausing. Yeah, and Powell does have to keep the committee together. I think he's okay to brook a little bit of dissent, but not a whole lot. But I don't think he really has that problem. I think there's... Uh, you know, from the former doves, uh, now they're, they're all sort of turned into hawks. I mean, uh, I don't think you're going to get a reversal from people like, uh, you know, Mary Daly from San Francisco, who's pegged four and three quarters to five and a quarter as her range for the peak funds rate. Um, and I don't think, you you know, guys like Neil Kashkari, who was previously a dove, now he's among the most hawkish out there. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of support for stopping here. Um, I, I think... When I look at the March contract, guys, I have this uh, uh, chart in the back that might be worth looking at. I think this might reflect where the Fed is as well. This is where the market is. Take a look uh, for for the debate over market. About 30 percent or 28 percent of folks uh, see the Fed being done at, call it 462. That's about 75 basis points from here. Uh, Half of the uh, uh, market sees the Fed done in March at 488. And then 
Another 19% say the Fed goes above five. Guys, that's the first chart. Uh, the, the second chart, the bar chart, is the one I was after there. Um, and, and that'll show, I think, Kelly, the dispersion in the market, probably in the Fed. But note that all of those numbers are higher from where they are here. Um, and the way I like to describe it, very similar to the way uh, Mr. Schumacher described it, is, you know, if you're putting out a fire and you're by yourself, you pour one bucket of water. But if you're the park ranger, you're going to pour five buckets of water on it to make sure the damn thing is out. And that's what the Fed's going to do here. Yeah, and I understand that, Michael, because we still have some wage pressures. But the market seems to be saying that monetary policy is already mm. restrictive. Look at the yield curves. I mean, that... If you take that message seriously, they're telling us we're not just going into recession, but we're going into a deep one. Does the Fed have a responsibility here to try to keep that from happening? Yeah, as far as the curve, Kelly, it's interesting. The curve was an excellent predictor of recessions, and we've got to be a little more clear about the curve. Market people usually talk about two-year versus 10-year. Sure. The Fed likes something much shorter. One but still, tens, its predictive power is pretty yeah. limited, and I think that's largely right. Exactly right. And that's the Fed's balance sheet has been so big, and I appreciate that it's shrinking, but that's really distorted that signal. So the Fed, in a way, it's, it's almost circular. It's bought so many bonds, it's driven down long-term rates, probably below where they should be fundamentally, and consequently, it's not telling us much, that, that being the curve, about the prospects for growth. So I wouldn't say it's a, an omen of recession, but it, it does get people in the market worried, and it doesn't work very well, frankly, for financial markets to have such a super inverted curve. I mean, do you, are you bullish on the economy, Michael? Is that what you think, that we're going to end up having you know, a decent 3% GDP number next year? Or, or, or what's the base case then? That, that get, or, or is that not the point? I mean, let, let's just mention for a second the tweets from Rick Reeder today, and, and this is a view that it, he doesn't hold mm. uh, only himself here, that you could have inflation readings in the 3% range by the middle to late next year. And if that's the case, and if that's what the market's signaling, then isn't the task achieved already? Task probably is not achieved yet. So my colleagues on the Wells Fargo economics team call for a recession next year, not huge. But I'd say, look, this time around, the Fed is engineering a recession. It wants a recession. Jay Powell can't say that. He'll talk about the window to a soft landing still being there, but being relatively narrow. But this is a feature. It's not a bug. So recession seems very likely. And I think recession fears are really causing rates to stay comparatively low. We think they're overdone because Jay Powell is going to say, look, we're not ready to cut. And that's eventually going to push up long-term rates. So it's a very fine path he has to walk, but recession still very much is in the offing. Yeah. Steve, quick last word here. What were you going to just say? I was going to point out that the Fed um, has a long way to go here. It's 6% on, on the, uh, the core rate right now. So you could be have a lot of conviction about a 3% uh, rate next year, uh, but you still got to get there before the Fed, because as long as it remains high, you have this fear that you're going to boost inflation expectations, which have, have been coming down, but you don't want to keep them at this level. The other thing that's interesting to me is Michael's forecast for 3% next year. That will change the conversation a lot. And then we're going to have a talk about 3% or 2% being our, 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 our target rate. And what's going to happen at 3%, especially if you have rising unemployment, the Fed will lose political support for its inflation 
fight right now. And then it's going to be a different story. So I think the Fed may take what it can get here while it has support, while it has high inflation, and it can justify these hikes and get, prepare for a pause and maybe that uh, downturn that Michael Schumacher and the Wells Fargo team are predicting. Right. Well, actually, if you guys don't mind, stay right there. We just had one of the auctions come in. I think the 30-year uh, poor, you might think, today had galvanized the buyers. But let's get out to Rick Santelli. Rick, how did it go and what are the takeaways? Well, look at an intraday of 30-year bond deals. And folks on the listening on the radio or watching on TV, you can see yields are going up, which means the auction didn't go well. Yesterday's 10-year had a four-basis point tail. Today's 30-year had a three-basis point tail. Let's go through it. 18 billion 30-year bonds reopened. Yield at the Dutch auction, 3.513, which is about three basis points from where the one issued market was trading. It was around 348 and change. Uh, higher yield, lower price. Uh, no way around it. They just didn't show up again. And if you consider, uh, let's go through the internal, some very interesting. I gave this a D as in dog. 2.25 bid to cover. That's the lowest bid to cover since D's of 21. Uh, 61.6 indirects, the smallest amount since D's of 21. There was one bright spot here that saved it from a D minus grade. Direct bidders, direct bidders, large funds, institutional funds, pension funds, they showed up in droves. 23.1. They showed up, they haven't showed up that intensely since D's of 2014. Dealers take a, a bit more than their 10 auction average. Just a, a lousy auction. And it really does demonstrate that one of the big issues is rates have been rather tame. We're probably going to slow the economy. Fed's probably going to over tighten. But somewhere on the backside down the road, quantitative tightening and the notion of issuance is going to take its toll, just like an auction today. But between then and now, it still looks like markets want lower rates. Kelly, uh, we had four days of inverted curve with regard to the knob, 10s versus 30s. It's still lightly inverted, but it is starting to get closer and closer. My call is 30-year uh, bond deals will remain the buyer's darling of the globe for those who are looking at economies slowing all around the world. Back to you. All right, Rick, thank you. Let me turn back to Michael Schumacher. Michael, so we have this auction to digest, a CPI report, the market turning negative on the session today, mm -hmm. and the, Dow, uh, the Fed looming tomorrow. What do you think the big message is here from the fact that we couldn't even hold on to this rally as we headed into this big decision tomorrow? pretty simple. It's don't fight the Fed. You've got the Fed coming down the pike in 24 hours, 25 hours, whatever. And a great CPI report is just not enough when you've got the Fed looming. So I think that's got people concerned. Liquidity tends to get pretty weak, as we all know, this time of year. There have been so many strange events. So not a lot of people want to take a lot of risk right now. I think they looked at their performance this morning, said pretty good. Why don't we back away for a while? Let's hear from Mr. Powell. All right, and let's. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, Michael Schumacher and our Steve Leisman. As we turn to the House Financial Services Committees, it's hearing on the collapse of FTX still underway. Founder Sam Bankman-Fried was planning to testify, as we all know, before he was arrested in the Bahamas last night. Now we're getting a look at the charges against him. Kate Rooney following that story for us. Kate? Hi, Kelly. That's right. Quite the 24 hours for the FTX founder. He was taken into custody in the Bahamas around 6 p.m. last night, the latest we got was an indictment this morning from the Southern District of New York. Bankman Freed is charged with eight counts, including wire fraud, money laundering, and conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and violate campaign finance regulations. SDNY says this started right around 2019. That is when FTX was founded. They do plan to hold a press conference 
in about an hour here. We also got a complaint from the CFTC accusing Sam Bankman-Fried and his other companies, FTX and Alameda, of fraud. The CFTC says FTX customer deposits were regularly accepted, held by and or appropriated by Alameda for its own use. That violated FTX's terms of service. At Bankman Freed's direction, FTX executives, they say, created features in the underlying code for FTX that allowed Alameda to maintain essentially an unlimited line of credit on that platform, among some other issues. It does echo what we heard from the SEC as well this morning, which said Bankman Freed committed, quote, a massive years-long fraud diverting billions of dollars of customer funds for his own personal benefit and say that he built what they called a house of cards on a foundation of deception. Kelly, we did hear from Bankman Freed's lawyers. They say he's reviewing the charges with his legal team and considering all of his legal options. Reuters now reporting that Sam Bankman Freed may fight Bahamas extradition. We're told he's leaving the courthouse in Nassau. Uh, sometime this afternoon. Back to you. Hoping we might get some uh, images of that as well. Kate, what do you make of the timing here, the fact that it happened on the eve of this hearing and uh, his prospects maybe for fighting extradition if he does pursue that strategy? The timing uh, was suspicious to a lot of people. Lawmakers last night came out with statements. uh, Maxine Waters, the chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, where he was supposed to testify, said that the American people wanted to hear from him. It was really an opportunity to hear from him under oath and lawmakers, I mean, he's been mentioned all day um, in the current hearing that's still going on with uh, the current CEO of FTX, John Ray. Legal experts I've talked to uh, have said that one of the reasons that he may not be testifying is that they wanted to avoid what they called really poisoning the jury. The idea that if he continues to speak publicly, it could affect an eventual hearing. Although he has done multiple media interviews, we've heard a lot from him. Not clear what we would have gotten that would have been different than that or why they pulled the plug the night before. Uh, But there's still some questions as to timing and why they wouldn't give him the opportunity to testify. But it it could have some legal implications when he does eventually go to trial. Does it suggest, and I'll let you go, Kate, but does it suggest this is all coordinated somehow or that... Or the opposite, that they're all that these jurisdictions are working at odds and, and in some ways trying to one up each other. So it does suggest some degree of coordination. We've heard from John Ray as well, the current FTX CEO, who says he's sharing information with law enforcement. He is essentially helping them on the back end and uh, providing as much evidence as possible. So you do get a sense that there is coordination between FTX's current management and law enforcement. The CFTC, SEC, and uh, DOJ here, Southern District of New York, uh, they all really came out at almost the same time with that press release. There has been a bit of a turf war between the SEC and CFTC in terms of who's regulating crypto. Right. So unclear if this is part of that, but it does seem like they're working with the DOJ here and they're all sharing information. at least that's what it appears. Sure. And we're, like you said, we're going to hear from them around 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, look forward to more detail from that. For now, Kate, thank you. Our Kate Rooney reporting. Coming up, we'll continue to monitor the FTX hearing and bring you the fresh headlines. We'll also be speaking with one congressman who's in that hearing right now. We'll get his reaction and biggest takeaways. Plus, the market making some big moves between the CPI and the Fed decision tomorrow. And our next guest has three names to help you ride it all out. As we head to break, here's another look at the Dow. We erased a 700-point gain, went negative. Now we're back up by six. The S&P up 16. The Nasdaq up half a percent. Small cap, same story, as the 10-year yield remains just under 3.5%. The exchange is back after this.
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. A pretty shocking turnaround. The Dow was up more than 700 points way earlier on. Now we're up just 57 after that cooler CPI report. One reason for this turnaround, uh, turned down, we should say, according to my next guest, could be that we're headed for an economics and earnings slowdown. And he says the CPI print helps prove his case. But that doesn't mean there aren't opportunities to be found in stocks. So let's welcome in Jim Tierney. He's CIO of U.S. Concentrated Growth at Alliance Bernstein. Great to see you, Jim. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So do you think that's what the market is realizing? Sort of the, yay, CPI is decelerating. Oh, wait, maybe decelerating us right into a recession kind of thing. I think there are a bunch of things going on. One, certainly some nervousness about Chair Powell's comments tomorrow afternoon. And then the reality that earnings are going to be under pressure over the next uh, few quarters and for most of 2023, uh, quite frankly. So when we say earnings are under pressure for 2023, what do you think the market currently has priced in and what do you foresee? Well, the bottoms-up numbers are a little bit scary. It's 235 on the S&P 500 Hmm. versus 220 this year. So that's a high single-digit gain. But the tops-down strategists are closer to 200, which implies a decline in earnings next year. My guess is that earnings estimates are going to be revised downward when we get to fourth-quarter earnings in late January and early February. Yeah, that's going to be another tough slog then for the market to to swallow. So when we say you still see opportunities here and, and st- still are in stocks, I mean, why? <laughs> why not just wait it out, get, pick everything up a little bit more cheaply? We actually have a blog out on that today on AB's Context blog site. But I think companies that have inelastic demand, have real secular growth, have pricing power, have cost-cutting opportunities, those are the kind of companies that are going to prosper in 2023. And I don't think that's fully discounted in a lot of the names that are going to be those winners. Yeah, but all that said, and you have a name like TJX, for instance, the parent company of TJ Maxx, I give CDW, Charles Schwab. I mean, each one of those, I could go through a litany of reasons. For Schwab, maybe it's more of, you know, the financial market story that's a headwind. For TJX, if there's a a recession, you, you would have to expect to get a price reset below where we are now or not. Well, I think the interesting thing about a TJX is as their customer starts looking for value, leaves the department stores and goes to an off-price retailer, TJX is the best. And oh, by the way, on the buy side, the goods that they're able to buy right now, phenomenal deals, which means that their margins are going to go up next year, not down. With Schwab, the opportunity from the net interest margin reset. So everything that's happened this year with rates going up, Schwab's going to benefit from that in 23, 24, and even 2025. So a great tailwind, which is why we like it, even with a tougher market. Uh, Rates, they're far more rate sensitive 
than market sensitive. So this is kind of in the stock picking vein. Do you have any other parting advice for investors who say, OK, well, what should we be bra- bracing for from the Fed tomorrow or in the coming months? Are they going to prioritize the slowdown that some say has inflation already falling to 3 percent by the end of the next year? Or are they going to try to make sure uh, that their hawkishness is vindicated uh, and make sure that wage pressures don't end up keeping inflation sticky here? I think the good news is that rates don't have to go up that much more. So we're not going to be fighting the Fed too much longer. Now, the challenge is that earnings are going to be under pressure. So if there's advice, it's find great management teams, teams that can sort of navigate the tough environment, because at the end of the day, those are the kind of teams that we think are the winners. And those are the kind of companies that we want to be invested in. Yeah, very Munger-esque. <laughs> it's almost like the longer they did it, the more they said, we all we care about is good management. First, they cared about price, then they cared less about it. And then it was just management, management, and management. Jim, thanks so much. It's good to see you today. Thank you. Jim Tierney. We've got a news alert on mortgage rates. Diana Olick with the details. Diana. Well, Kelly, the CPI did it again. The prospect of cooler inflation sent investors to the bond market, shrinking yields and consequently mortgage rates. The average rate on the 30-year fix dropped 11 basis points this morning to 6.28%. That, according to Mortgage News Daily, it wasn't as big as the last post-CPI drop in November, which was a stunning 60 basis point drop. Because while today's CPI does continue building the case that inflation has turned the corner, rates will be careful about reading too much into that potential shift, given the volatility of the data in recent months. And that's all according to Matthew Graham of Mortgage News Daily. And of course, the bond market is watching for what the Fed does tomorrow as well. Still, rates are now down over a full percentage point from where they were last peaking in October at 7.37%. So take a $400,000 mortgage. That's saving you about $291 on the monthly payment just over the last couple of months. But that payment still close to $600 more than it was just a year ago. Now, we know the rate drop last month did not exactly help spur more home buying, and we're now in the historically slowest month in the market. So I guess, Kelly, we wait to January to see what the effect is. There's also been some widening, hasn't there, in the spread between the 10-year and the mortgage rate? Probably about three points right now. Is that normal, or should we expect that to widen because of more QT next (laughs) year? What is normal? What is normal? (laughs) You can't ask me a question, is that normal? (laughs) What's the new normal? (laughs) What's the new normal? Look, no, I mean, look, rates have been coming down. There's obviously the effect of what the Fed is saying, but it's what the Fed is thinking in the future that also affects mortgage rates as well. Yeah. All right, Diana, for now. Thank you, Diana Oleg. Still ahead, Boeing is having a quarter to remember, and now it's getting a major boost from one of its biggest customers. We've got Phil LeBeau with that story. As we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. Boeing's in there up half a percent, but Chevron, Goldman, and Merck are leading the way. IBM, by the way, hitting its highest level in nearly five years. We're back after this. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at T-Mobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a look at markets. The Dow was up 707 points before turning negative last hour. Now it's up about 103. The S&P up three quarters of a percent. Now the Nasdaq, a 1% gain. Some of the individual movers include Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, all off their session highs, but in the green today. The biggest performer, probably Alphabet, with about a 2% gain. Also, keep an eye on Moderna shares at their highest level since January. Not a COVID story here. Their mRNA cancer vaccine showed promise in an early trial. The stock is having its best day since March of 2020 with a 24% gain. On the flip side, Oracle erasing a 5% gain after beating estimates on the top and bottom line last night. You can see those shares have now turned negative by about three quarters of a percent and granted what's been kind of a tough market. And of course, Tesla continuing its decline. It's the worst performer on the Nasdaq today. It's down almost 4% trading at its lowest level all the way since November of 2020. It's also falling below $500 billion in market cap for the first time since then as well. Remember, this used to be a trillion dollar stock just a couple of months ago. Its forward P.E. is down to 29. How humble. Next hour on Power Lunch, we're going to look at some of the biggest valuation reversals in the market to see which ones may be worth snapping up. First, though, let's get to Bertha Coombs for the CNBC News Update. Bertha? Hey, Kelly, here's what's happening at this hour. A lot of wicked weather. The massive storm blowing across the country has spawned tornadoes in Oklahoma and Texas. This is the damage in Wayne, Oklahoma, where numerous homes were destroyed and power lines were down in the northern plains. Blizzard are in effects, or blizzard warnings rather, in effects in parts of four states. And 200 miles of Interstate 90 in South Dakota has been closed due to heavy snow and icy conditions. Meantime, at least 100 people have been killed by floods in the capital of Congo. Many homes have been destroyed and roads have been turned into rivers, practically. Landslides have also added to the destruction. Some 12 million people live in the neighborhoods of Kinshasa, hit by the heavy rains. And some good news, maybe, for Argentina soccer fans. Four-year-old Giant Panda predicts the South American team will prevail in its World Cup semifinal match against Croatia. Panda is one of a pair given to Qatar ahead of the World uh, uh, Cup. However, their predictions have not always been spot on. They incorrectly chose Spain to beat Morocco last Tuesday. You know, whether they're wrong or not, they're, they're cute. Well, we're pulling hard for Argentina on this show uh, with Maria Bowden at the helm. It's true. And Messi. Messi has yet to win <sighs> a World Cup. Hopefully he gets it this time. All right. Bertha, thank you very much. Bertha Coombs. Still ahead, Sam Bankman-Fried may not have been part of the FTX collapse hearing on the Hill today. But my next guest was Representative Jim Himes was there to question current FTX CEO John Ray. He will be here live next with his biggest takeaway and whether he thinks Washington needs to get more serious about regulating crypto. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. The House Financial Services Committee grilling FTX CEO John Ray today on the heels of Sam Bankman-Fried's arrest last night. Let's get to Elon Moy on Capitol Hill for the highlights. Elon? Well, Kelly, current FTX CEO John Ray said that Sam Bankman-Fried plays zero role at the company now, as one would hope. Ray spent much of the past three hours or so outlining issues with oversight, corporate governance, and management throughout the company. He said a lot of the problems at FTX came down to what he said was old-fashioned embezzlement. 
I mean, there was no corporate controls, no corporate oversight, no independent uh, board, and uh, uh, the owners of the business, the senior management, had you know virtual control of of the accounts of of each of the silos and could move money or assets, you know, as they desired, undetected uh, by customers. Uh, so, uh, you know, to the extent there were rules, and there were very few, obviously they were made to be broken. Now, Ray said there was no question that FTX international customer assets were transferred to Alameda. Alameda. They said they're still investigating the commingling of U.S. funds, but that there is a potential that there was some improper use there as well. And that Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, claim that the U.S. part of the business was solvent is simply not true. Ray also acknowledged that some of this money may simply be gone for good. At the end of the day, we're not going to be able to recover all the losses here. Right? Uh, money was spent that we'll never get back. There will be losses on the international side. We're hopeful on the U.S. side. Um, he'll answer to others related to what happened here. Our job is just to you know, find the assets and try to get customers their money back as quickly as possible. Kelly Ray said that process could take months or potentially even longer. Back over to you. I'm sure. Elon, for now, thank you, our Elon Moy. Let's talk more about where the FTX saga does go from here. We'll bring in Representative Jim Himes, a Democrat from Connecticut who sits on the House Financial Services Committee. Congressman, thanks for your time today and welcome. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Biggest takeaway so far from everything you've heard? Well, you know, the biggest takeaway for me, at least, and there's cameras everywhere, and this was going to be a blockbuster event, and Sam, Bank Sam Bankman-Fried was going to show up. Sadly, he was uh, otherwise disposed uh, this morning, but, you know, it, it sort of has this Hollywood feel around here. Look, the biggest takeaway is that if you read the Southern District of New York indictment, um, what went wrong here is old school, right? There was commingling of customer funds with a hedge fund. There was, according to the Southern District of New York, wire fraud. There was misleading of investors. There were all kinds of things that we've seen for generations. Now, there, there is an angle on this which is new, right? Um, and you were just talking about, are they going to recover the money? One of the angles here that is new is the existence of this token, FTT, right. inside of FTX. So this was used as collateral. They made it up. And I think, I think that's where this is slightly different than Enron or MF Global or other examples of corporate malfeasance that we've, you know, that we've seen here. But what are we going to do? I mean, what is now um, the pursuit of justice as it relates to the FTX case, but to crypto more broadly? In fact, let me play a soundbite from one of your colleagues today who had, uh, uh, Brad Sherman, I believe, who had quite some words about the whole industry. He thinks this is not an isolated case. Take a quick listen. For five years, I've been trying to ban American investments in crypto. I'm the only member of the House to get an F from the only crypto-promoting organization that rates members of Congress. My fear is that we'll view Sam Bankman-Fried as just one big snake in a crypto garden of Eden. The fact is, crypto is a garden of snakes. What's your response to that, Congressman, and, and what regulatory measures do you think should be pursued now? Well, so my friend Brad Sherman is, is and always has been on the sort of no crypto extreme of things here. I will tell you that inside the Congress there uh, is a small group of people who would ban it. Now, by the way, I'm not even sure you can ban it any more than you can ban any other payment system. If we ban it here in the United States, it will continue to exist offshore in Europe and Asia where it's already being used in a meaningful way. Um, but the point is most of us are sort of crypto curious or really excited about some of the possibilities, even as we are conscious of the both fraud, as we're hearing about today, but the nonsense 
nonsense, the nonsense. I mean, this feels like the early days of the Internet to me where, you know, you knew there was something there, but you didn't know exactly what it was going to be. So your question was, what should we do? We should regulate stable coins. OK, there's 50 billion dollars a day in stable coins trading today. That's a you know, somebody's using it out there. We ought to do what we started to do, which is come up with a bipartisan framework for regulation of stable coins. And then we need this gets to FTX. We need to solve the FTX problem. Right. Current SEC chair uh, Gary Gensler says the laws already exist. These people just need to comply. Well, they're not complying. And so Gary Gensler and the SEC is doing, are doing the occasional enforcement actions, which gets everybody all a Twitter. Um, but the point is, if we have the laws and people aren't complying, we need to close that gap and find some way, either through explicit guidance or through more enforcement, where people begin to comply. Uh, if, by the way, Gary Gensler is wrong and the laws are insufficient for one reason or another, that's where we come in. We've got to plug those gaps with new legislation. Right. But to quote from your colleague one more time, he basically said, let's not arrest Sam Bankman Freed, but still pass his legislation. You know, is the final version of crypto regulation going to look like something he would have been like, yeah, this looks great. I'd be fine with this. Look, our job as government is to keep people safe, right? Um, we need to stop fraud. We need to make sure that people aren't investing their life savings in, uh, you know, fraudulent or wildly volatile things. It's up to the market to determine whether, a, whether there is a use case for crypto. It's not up to me or up to Brad Sherman or to the Congress of the United States. Now, now, maybe Brad Sherman is right, and nobody at the end of the day, 20 years from now, cares a thing about this. The crypto is the pet rock of the 21st century. Who cares? But the point is it's up to the market to determine that. It's up to us to make sure that those markets are fair and free and not subject to fraud. And you feel confident that we're at that point or going to be at that point shortly. What's the what's the legislation look like that you would feel comfortable passing here? So, so we're obviously not at that point. We're not at that point because every week, and this is where Brad Sherman is right, every week there's another blow up, right? Um, you know, there's all sorts of runs on all sorts of different exchanges. So no, we're not close to that point. And part of the reason we're not close to that point is because the Congress has largely been silent on creating, if they're necessary, a new set of laws. So again, what would I do? I would pass stablecoin legislation because actually a lot of people out there are using stablecoin. So let's pass stablecoin legislation that makes sure that those stablecoin markets markets are well reserved and function well, you know, then let's move on to solving this problem about the fact that you've got all these offshore entities and other entities which appear not to be complying with securities law. I think that's the path for us here in the in the capital. Final question. In the past, have you supported the idea of the central bank, the Federal Reserve doing its own kind of, uh, you know, central bank digital currency? And, and do your views on that change at all now in the wake of all that's happened? Yeah, I would tell you that three or four months ago, I wrote a report um, that suggested that we ought to keep up the research and keep up the development around a central bank digital currency. Now, by the way, the libertarians hate that because the whole point of crypto for them anyway is that you have a totally decentralized, totally anonymous um, uh, currency out there. You know, the reality is, particularly in the last three months where we've seen these spectacular crypto meltdowns, you know, two trillion dollars in market value of crypto assets simply disappeared. I think there's probably a stronger case today for a central bank-backed digital currency that people trust because it has the full faith and credit of the United States government rather than full faith and credit of Sam Bankman-Fried, I think there's a case. Now, again, we don't want that to squeeze out private stable coins, but I think there's a pretty powerful case for, uh, you know, the equivalent uh, of the dollar bill in my wallet right now, but that is known to be safe and known to be secure. Or unless it's about crowding out the dollar bills so that only the digital currency remains and, and you know, there's sort of a lost aspect of 
of privacy uh, at the bottom of that, in which case people would say, well, you've taken one crisis as an excuse to kind of get at a, di a very different problem, uh, if you want to call it that, that's existed in this country for quite some time. Well, let's not do away. Nobody's saying let's do away with physical dollar bills, uh, by the way, other than the market. I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, I think I'm using physical dollar bills for about, you know, 3% of my transactions today. And I think that's true of most people. And I think most people understand that when you use a debit card, when you use Venmo, you know, there are people who have the ability to look at what it is that you're doing. So, you know, I think, I think most American consumers have gotten over the privacy hump uh, with respect to electronic forms of currency. Uh, and so now the question is, how do we just make sure you know that privacies are privacy is appropriately protected but that these mechanisms are secure and safe and people don't lose money well they're all related all different but uh, again a consequential day here for FTX in particular and perhaps regulating crypto from here on out congressman thanks so much for your time we appreciate it thank you congressman Kelly. Jim Himes of Connecticut still ahead Boeing is gonna have to fire up the 787 Dreamliner assembly lines big time thanks to United's massive new order up next we'll get why the order could be a boon for both companies but the shares not trading that way United's down almost seven percent today we're back in a moment Welcome back. United and Boeing announcing a massive order for the 787 Dreamliner. But look at shares of United down almost 7% today. Philip Bo is at the Boeing plant in Charleston, South Carolina, and spoke with both CEOs about why such a massive order is being placed, Phil. It's all about timing, Kelly. And, and don't confuse United being down, what, about 7% with this order. That's separate. That has to do with sentiment regarding airline stocks. When you look at this order, look how huge this is. The largest ever for a U.S. airline. We're talking about 1787 Dreamliners, an option to order 100 more, and then 100 737 Maxes, 56 new orders, an option being exercised on 44 others. For United, the timing makes sense. Why? Because the supply of new aircraft is going to be fairly constricted over the next several years. It wanted to lock in delivery slots. And when we talked with CEO Scott Kirby, he said this is all about making sure they get the planes they want when they want them. It created this unique moment where demand is fully recovered, but supply is going to be below trend for years to come. And we wanted to get ahead of that curve. We have gotten ahead of that curve. Uh, it's going to be really hard for anyone to catch up to us. I give lots of credit to the United leadership team for understanding the world's supply constraints and wanting to get that or in the water, if you will. Um, but there will be more to come. And I'm very confident that this airplane and that production rate, will we will see that through. That's the big challenge for Boeing now, ramping up that production rate. As you look at shares of uh, United Airlines, they're going to be receiving 700 new aircraft between now and 2032. About half of them will be brand new to service, adding to the fleet. The other half will re be replacing older aircraft. And as you take a look at Boeing, keep in mind that the big focus right now, increasing production not only here in Charleston for the 787 Dreamliner, but also out in Renton, Washington for the 737 MAX. Kelly, back to you. Well, not to be a Debbie Downer, but why are the shares down? today, Phil. What is it about the outlook for the airlines that's right. the problem? It, it was JetBlue's guidance and that guidance saying that they see a little weakness in the revenue translates into demand. You combine that with some of the commentary uh, and the, the reports from Spirit as well as uh, from uh, a couple other airlines in the last few days that has people saying, now, wait a second, are we seeing a drop off in demand? I should tell you, 
everybody else that we've talked to within the industry is saying we see strong demand going well into 2023. But all it takes is one or two airlines saying, eh, we're not crazy about what we're seeing right now. And that has spooked investors. Yeah, spirit shares barely lower, while JetBlue, to your point, those are down about 10%, Delta about 5% as well. Yeah. Phil, with all the info, thank you very much, sir. We'll leave it there for now. You bet. Our Phil Lebeau in Charleston today. Coming up, shares of this payments company. They're up more than 23% over the past two months, and Piper Sandler sees more than 30% upside from here. The name and why coming up next. Welcome back. It's been a rough year for the payment stocks. Block was our mystery chart before the break. Those shares, like PayPal's, have fallen about 60% since January, but they are up about 20% this fall. Piper Sandler initiating coverage on Block, PayPal, and Amex today, but they're only bullish on one of them. Let's welcome in Kevin Barker. He's managing director at Piper Sandler and the analyst behind those calls. And it's Block that you like here, Kevin. Why is that? Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Um, Block stands out to us because it's been able to generate significant revenue growth and potentially gross profit growth, particularly within Ash App and then also within their Square franchise. Um, Block's been able to produce, you know, roughly 126% growth uh, within subscription-based revenue over the last couple of years. And we, we expect them to be on pace for over 40% growth over the next year. And with that revenue growth comes significant operating leverage that I think the market is not appreciating. Uh, these stocks have been under a lot of pressure just given, you know, Fed sure. in interest rate increases and other things. But I think that turns around as we move through the next six to 12 months. Should they rename it back to Square? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Every time I see Block, uh, I think, you question. know, I, crypto I get it mixed up all the time. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Uh, the ticker is SQ, so uh, definitely get a, get a few of those. But. Yeah, true. All right, let's talk about I don't about know if Jack Dorsey's listening to what I'm saying. He, Of course he is. Of course he is. Let's move on talk about PayPal, and of course it's all important Venmo app, but kind of the sister story in, in many cases of what we were just discussing, but you're just neutral there. Why? Why don't you think their prospects look brighter, brighter into next year? I mean, they definitely have some extremely valuable customers, especially within Venmo. Um, and I think longer term, the ability for them to monetize that customer base and get and get those customers to really use that for transactions with merchants as opposed to peer-to-peer -peer, um, money transfers, I think is, is really the key to what's going to happen with PayPal over the next, I would say, three to five years. And monetizing Venmo is extremely important. Um, however, what we're seeing is the revenue growth from this company has been slowing, especially coming out of the pandemic which is making it tougher for them to generate operating leverage. In fact, we're seeing operating margins go down. Um, and so we think the stock garners a lower multiple relative to block. And therefore, uh, where it sits today, it's just it's in a tougher spot. But we'll caveat it and say there is a lot of potential that if they were able to execute, it could be a very strong performance. Sure. And finally, Amex, just a quick word here. What would get you more excited about the stock? You initiated it with just a neutral. Um, Amex is a great company. They've done, they have one of the best customer bases within credit cards or within payments overall. It has, is incredibly resilient through recessions. It's just, it's more expensive relative to peers. It's outperformed relative to peers over the last year. It's just, you know, it's a more expensive stock relative to what I see out there today. So this is more of a relative call more than anything else. I think if we have a soft landing uh, with the economy and, and the Fed's and we start to see CPI slow, like maybe we saw this morning. 
you know, on the other side, you know, American Express could do pretty well because spending is going to remain elevated. Um, we expect spending to slow down over the next year, which I think is going to put a headwind on, on the revenue side for brands. All right. We will see Kevin on the block. We'll leave it there. And thanks for your Thank time you, today, sir. Appreciate it. Kevin Barker uh, joining us with his picks. Coming up, private equity is dead. Long live private equity. A look at how rising rates are changing the landscape of funding private companies and the firms poised to ramp up their spending next year. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Want to get to one more thing before we go. It's only the future of deal making. Robert Frank is here now with why those family offices, we've talked about them before, Robert, could be the new P.E. firms in 2023. That's right, Kelly. The favorite investment for family offices next year is private equity. A survey from Camden Wealth and RBC found that nearly half plan to allocate more to private equity, private companies and private debt next year. That compares with only 24% who plan to put more money into stocks. Private equity now makes up 27% of their portfolios. That's up from 21% last year. Family offices now have an estimated $6 trillion in assets, and this could be their golden opportunity right now to take market share from the big private equity funds. That's because those funds are struggling with higher interest rates, a lack of financing, investor withdrawals, and a lack of exits because of this frozen IPO market, that has all opened the door to family offices who have hundreds of billions of dollars in dry powder and much longer timelines so they don't have to cash out anytime soon. Now, bankers say more and more of the nation's biggest companies are turning to family offices for funding. You can read more about the family-to-family investment boom and our latest family office investor interview with a very inspiring tech entrepreneur, Bill Spruill, all of that on CNBC Pro. Kelly? You know this is one of my favorite topics, Robert, because if you call it family office, it sounds cozy. <laughs> but we all know this yeah. is kind of just a financial investing firm by a different name. How long until regulators crack down, do you think? Um, look, there, there hasn't been a scandal anytime soon, and the money is just growing. More than half of the $6 trillion in assets and family offices have been created since 2010. So this is a massive industry. And as we're seeing with private equity, they are changing the investment landscape very quickly. If they're here to stay, is it going to be a brain drain from those other areas? It already is. We're seeing them recruit from Goldman Sachs, all the investment banks. They're recruiting from the private equity firms. You know, the, the big talent now is going to family offices because that's where the money is going. That's where these big fortunes are saying rather than going to traditional wealth management companies. So yeah. they're really seeing a big upgrade in talent and executives. It, I just have this vision of them working in a, a library with, you know, a nice whiskey or something on and thinking about they, these investments. They have some really <laughs> nice, cor they have nice corporate offices that look like global investment firms. Yeah. I mean, some of these, these family offices, which are billions of dollars, they look like investment banks because they essentially are, exactly. but just for one family. If it quacks like a duck, you know, <laughs> it looks like a duck. It's a duck, Robert. Thank you very much. It's a family office. Robert Frank. Thanks. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.